The following message entitled, Captivated and Confident, Part 2 of the series, A Righteousness from God, was given by Joe Ryer on February 2, 2014 at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. If you have a Bible, open to Romans chapter 1. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Joe, one of the pastors here, and last week we started a series on the book of Romans, so this is part two of that series, the series we're calling A Righteousness from God, and today's message is entitled Captivated and Confident. So let me just pray and ask God for help before we dive into the Bible. Father, we, we thank you that we can call you Father because of Jesus being our Savior. And Holy Spirit, thank you that you are in us and you dwell among us. And Holy Spirit, we need your help. I pray that you would encourage and strengthen every Christian here this morning and you would open eyes to anyone here who doesn't yet know you. And Lord, we want to be like Paul, captivated by the reality of Jesus and confident in the content of the gospel. So Lord, would you please help us? And Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, as I said last week, we are studying the book of Romans. If you weren't here last week, I encourage you to listen to the first message on the book of Romans because I gave a lot of background information that really fills out um, a lot of the details in the book of Romans. And what I said last week is we're going to study this as a church. So I would encourage you to read it on your own. Read it and reread it. If you have time, sit down and read the book of Romans in one sitting. It takes about an hour to 90 minutes. And just read it as a letter that came in the mail that you are receiving. Before we look at Romans 1, verse 8 through 17... I wanted to start by reading a true story that took place in the 1500s. This story is about a man that probably most of you have heard of named Martin Luther. At the time, in the 1500s, he was a Catholic priest. And Martin Luther was about to, to celebrate the first communion service that he was going to perform as a Catholic priest. So this was a very big deal for him. As you're going to find out in a moment, his dad wasn't real happy about him being a priest. But listen to what R.C. Sproul writes in his book, The Holiness of God. The celebration of his first Mass following his ordination was Luther's public debut as a cleric or as a priest. Old Hans Luther, his father, had almost made his peace with his son's decision to give up a lucrative career in law in favor of the monastic life. So not only was he a priest, but he was living in a monastery. He was feeling some pride. My son, the priest. The scheduled celebration was seen as a time of family pride, and Luther's relatives joined the public to observe his celebration. None in attendance expected what happened. Luther began the ceremony with great poise, exuding a priestly bearing of confidence and self-control. And when he came to the prayer of consecration, that moment in the Mass when Luther would exercise his priestly authority for the first time to evoke the power of God to perform the great miracle of communion, Luther faltered. 
he froze at the altar. He seemed transfixed. His eyes were glassy. Beads of perspiration formed on his forehead. A nervous hush filled the congregation as they silently urged the young priest on. Hans Luther was growing uncomfortable. Feeling a wave of parental embarrassment sweep over him, his son's lower lip began to quiver. He was trying to speak the words of the Mass, but no words came forth from his mouth. He went limp and returned to the table where his father and family guests were seated. He had failed. He had ruined the Mass. He disgraced himself and his father. Hans was furious. And so the account goes on. Dad's disappointed. Martin Luther doesn't know if he can make it as a priest. But later in life, as Martin Luther is reflecting back on what happened at this first communion service, he says something very insightful that will inform what we're going to look at today. He said when he was performing this communion service, and he came to the words, We offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. So he has the bread, he has the wine, he's saying those words. He said, here's what happened. At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue should, shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty. The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I want this and ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin. And I am speaking to the living, eternal, and true God. What happened to Martin Luther was he had a, a vision, a glimpse of the holiness of God. And he knew how sinful he was. And if you study his life, he would go on these great vigils and fasts and sleepless nights. And he would spend six hours in a confessional confessing sins so much that the priest that he was confessing the sins to would tell him to go sin for real, come back, and then you'd have something to tell me. As Martin Luther reflected back on this, he said, if ever a monk could be saved by his monkery, it was I. He so tried to earn God's favor. And what happened was, he was given an assignment to teach a class on the book of Romans. And when he came to Romans chapter 1, for the first time in his life, he understood the gospel. He understood that Christ's righteousness was a gift for any sinner who trusted in him. And it set him free. It captivated him for his entire life. So from that point on, he wrote and preached and taught and made disciples for Jesus Christ. And the remarkable thing is, 15 centuries earlier, the Apostle Paul was writing this very letter that really was the primary cause for the Reformation. So let's look at verses 8 through 17. This is part 2 of the introduction to Romans. He's writing to Rome. He hasn't been there yet, but he knows about them. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. 
For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap a harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul, as we're going to see in this introduction, by the gospel. He was amazed by what Jesus has done in his life. And all we're going to do from this introduction is answer two simple questions. These are questions for you to think about. Have you been captivated by the gospel? Have, has it captured you? Not are you a believer, but are you moved by the good news of Jesus? And are you confident in the gospel? Are you confident in the gospel? These two simple questions are going to be answered in this introduction. And we're really going to spend more time in verses 16 and 17, which really are the main, the main thesis of the entire letter. But we're going to start with verse 8. Have you been captivated by the gospel? Before we go into it, we, we have to make sure we, we know what we're talking about. What is the gospel? We sing about the gospel. We talk about the gospel. What, what is the gospel? What does it mean? Well, the gospel is literally good news. And the good news is good news about God's Son. The good news of the Bible, the good news for which Paul gave his life, risked life and limb for, is the good news that God, who is holy, the one that Martin Luther feared, sent his son Jesus into the world. He became man. He lived an entirely perfect life, perfectly obeying, performing great miracles, healing many people, giving great hope to the world. And He came not just to do that, but He came to die for our sins. And so, Jesus' life on earth ends after He's arrested, falsely accused, imprisoned, and nailed to a wooden cross. Now, all that is predicted in the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 goes into great detail of how Jesus would suffer and die. He died a brutal death. A death so bad that for a Roman citizen, they could never be crucified. It was Roman law that you, if you were a Roman citizen, no matter the crime, you couldn't be crucified because it was so bad. Well, Jesus came to die for our sins. And so He was crucified 
between two criminals. He hung on the cross. He absorbed the wrath of God, the punishment for our sins, and He died. Well, three days after He died, He rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death. And by His resurrection, we have hope. We have hope that if we trust in Jesus, our sins will be forgiven, we will never be punished for our sin, and one day, we will live forever with God. Well, that's the good news in summary. And that good news so captivated and captured the Apostle Paul. And God wants that good news to capture our hearts as well. So we first need to believe by faith. But as we grow as Christians, in an ongoing way, we should be captivated and captured by God's love in this good news. And if you follow Paul at all through the New Testament, he traveled everywhere and anywhere, armed and ready to preach this good news. So verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So Paul is writing this letter to the Roman Christians. He's most likely writing from a city um, called Corinth. And as he thinks of the Roman Christians, he is so thankful for them. One of the evidences that he was captivated by the gospel is he desired to see the gospel affect as many people as possible throughout the world. And the idea that the gospel had made it to Rome thrilled him. Rome was the capital of the world. Rome was a city that esteemed human wisdom and was very proud about it. And yet, the good news of Jesus Christ had penetrated Rome. And Paul was very thankful about that. Because he wanted to see the gospel spread far and wide. And when we're captivated by the gospel, we're motivated to pray for other believers. We think of God's kingdom as a whole. So not only are we excited when the gospel spreads, but we are mindful to pray for other believers. Look at verse 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul prayed for them. He petitioned God on their behalf. And imagine if you were the Christians in Rome. Claudius had come through in 49 AD, kicked all the Jewish Christians out of Rome. Nero was about to come into power. So there's tension in Rome for Christians. There's real threat of persecution and even death. And to know that there are people in other places throughout the globe praying that God would strengthen and care for them. That's an effect of encountering Jesus Christ. That we really are one family, brothers and sisters in Christ. So when Mark prayed for the other churches in our region today, he's praying for our family. He's praying for our brothers and sisters throughout this area that God has saved. And so that, that's a right response 
to the gospel. We're motivated to pray for others. When we're captivated by the gospel, we desire to strengthen and encourage other believers. Look at verses 11 and 12. If anyone had reason to think about himself and feel pity for himself, it would have been Paul. He had been arrested many times. He had lost many friends. Uh, Some of his closest friends turned their backs on him, did great harm to him, he says in the Bible. Alexander the coppersmith has done me great harm. So he could have been tempted to go inward and say, I'm not going to do any of this anymore. I'm just going to sit in a little obscure place, read my Old Testament, and wait for Jesus to take me. But he didn't do that. He had a very outward focus. Now, he was called to be an apostle, so that's different than all of us, but I think in principle it applies to all of us. Look at verse 11 and 12. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and and mine. Paul longed to see them primarily so that he could be a blessing to them. So he could be a means that God could use to impart spiritual gifts to strengthen the church in Rome. That's how we should all be as we think about what Jesus has done for us. We want to be supportive of one another, particularly as we follow Jesus. Now, not only did he want to encourage others, but he was always thinking of the lost. Those who did not know Jesus. Those who were currently, presently objects of wrath. And when we're captivated by the gospel, we share it with others. Verse 13, 14, and 15, he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks, to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he wanted to encourage the church in Rome, but he wanted the the non-Christians, the Gentiles in Rome to hear the gospel. Both when he says the Greeks and the barbarians, all that means is the educated, the cultured, those who could speak the Greek language, who could read the great Greek literature, and then the Gentiles who, who were uncultured, unsophisticated. He wanted to reach them all. And when we're captivated by the gospel, we will share it with others, with an expectation that there will be a harvest, that they will actually respond. But as I was preparing and praying and thinking about um, the message, one of the things that, that popped into my mind for this section was, there's probably some of you this morning that think, the last thing that I want to hear this morning as a Christian is an encouragement to share the gospel with someone else. And the reason you think that is because your life It's just filled with difficulty right now. It is hard. It's been hard for a prolonged time. You're under pressure. Maybe you're physically, your body is failing. And when you think about evangelism, it's just way, 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 way down on the list. And I understand that. 
But I want to gently encourage all of us that no matter how difficult our lives become, and if we live long enough, they will be difficult as Christians. Jesus is faithful. As a believer, we have hope. We have hope that no one else in the world has. And so as we are in our trials that are real and are painful and maybe feel like they are unending, we're not those without hope. So in the the past few years in our family, we have had numerous deaths in our extended family. They have come in waves and waves. I've done more funerals in Mary's hometown than here. And they just keep coming. And the reason they come is because we live in a fallen world. But what keeps pulling me back out is we have hope. We have Jesus. Imagine your situation without Jesus. So when you're going to yet another doctor's appointment or another visit into a difficult situation or another difficult visit with a spouse who is somewhat estranged from the family, you're going with Jesus. Jesus is with you. And so... Your evangelism might just be, how are you doing? Well, it's hard. But I have Jesus. He has saved me. He is my hope. I can't wait to be with Him forever. And so evangelism isn't just for the strong and those who are doing well in the Lord. It's for all of us. We have a real, live, living hope in Jesus Christ. So I want to just gently encourage you. And here's a secret that you might not know. You've been a Christian for a while, you already know. But if you haven't, here's a secret. God uses weak people to introduce others to Himself. He uses weak sinners whose bodies are failing, who have immense pressures on themselves, to introduce other sinners who have the same pressures but don't have Jesus yet, to introduce Others to Jesus. He's going to use us. He wants to use all of us. And so you don't have to have some elaborate plan. You have to speak about the hope that you have personally received and experienced. Because when we're captivated by the Gospel, we're to share it with others. We have good news. And, and where... I can't think of a better place than to share good news with others who are in great difficulty. Imagine... Imagine this. My grandmother is a believer. She's in her 80s. But in her late 60s, she had cancer. She was not a Christian. And she's in the hospital. She thinks she's going to die. And a stranger comes in and shares the gospel with her. My grandma was born again in that hospital room. She responded to the good news of Jesus. She has no idea who that person was. Never met him again. Never talked to him again and has been following Jesus for over 15 years, all because somebody came in and brought the good news. Now that person probably had other family members in the hospital, or may have worked in the hospital, had plenty of other things to do, and yet for that few minutes of time, they just stepped out and shared the good news. And because of that, my grandmother will be in heaven. She has eternal life, present day. That's all I'm encouraging us to do. That within your sphere of life, just talk about Jesus. Speak about Jesus. Because when we're captivated by the Gospel, we share it 
out of a God-centered obligation as well. Paul has this interesting phrase in Romans um, 13 and 14, 14. He says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. He, another way to translate this word obligation, he was a debtor. He was in debt to the Lord. Now, he wasn't in debt in a way that he had to earn God's favor. That was a free gift. But as one commentator says, Paul had an obligation to him who died, to Jesus. And that obligation produced an obligation for others that Jesus had died for. So Paul was in debt to Jesus for the great sacrifice that Jesus made for him. And that motivated him in a right way to feel an obligation to fellow men and women throughout the world who needed Jesus. Now, Paul was called to do that formally as an apostle, but we're all called to do that as ambassadors for Jesus. So are you captivated by the gospel? Not only was Paul captivated by the gospel, indebted to preach the gospel, but he was so confident in the content of the gospel. He had real confidence and courage in the gospel, which brings us to the second question. Are you confident in the content of the gospel? Do you believe the message? And do you stake your life on it? Verse 16 and 17 are really the thesis statement of his entire letter. So as you're studying through Romans, read and reread verses 16 and 17, and you'll see them show up throughout the entire letter of Romans. I'm going to slow down a little bit at this point, but verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. One of the ways we know Paul had confidence in the gospel, is he was not ashamed. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed. Why would he write that? I think one of the reasons he wrote that is because he lived in a world, not unlike our world, where the message of Jesus seemed very foolish. Especially in Rome, where Greek culture was firing on all cylinders. And they were studying the great writers of all history. And a guy during the early church wrote this about the gospel that Paul was going to preach in Rome. He said, Paul was going to preach Jesus, who was thought to be the carpenter's son, who was brought up in Judea, and that in a house of a lowly woman. So Mary was uneducated, she was young, she was poor. He lived in a house who had no bodyguards, who was not encircled in wealth, but even died as a culprit with robbers, the Jesus he followed and worshipped, and endured many other inglorious things. This was Paul's gospel. This is our gospel. This is the hope of the world. This foolish message that this obscure man, Jesus, born to a carpenter, a manual laborer, physical worker, 
is the hope of the world. Paul staked his life on Jesus. And he was not ashamed. And he knew there was a temptation for the Christians in Rome, and really throughout the world, to be ashamed or be embarrassed of the Gospel of Jesus. And we get that. We know what it's like to to feel embarrassed. As I was thinking of times I've felt embarrassed in my life, they all kind of went back to school quickly. So you can remember if you went to any public school in the United States, if somebody dropped their tray in the cafeteria, what happened? Great applause. It was a celebration. And uh, you just didn't want to be the one dropping the tray. So if, if they accidentally had an accident, drops on the ground, the, uh, my high school was great at it. The whole high school would erupt in applause. And if you were that one, head down, you feel ashamed. You're embarrassed. Well, when I was a little bit younger in elementary school, I can remember feeling ashamed to get dropped off at school. At, at one point, my mom had this Dodge Dart. This very, it was very old then. Um, I don't know what year it was. But it was this green beat-up car. And it was so beat up that you had to, from the inside, this was before seatbelt laws and all that stuff, you had to hold the door. So if you were in the passenger seat of the front seat, you had to hold the door when we went around corners because the door would swing up. And so my mom would say, hold on tight, hold the door. Well, I didn't like getting dropped off at elementary school, especially in fifth grade. I was like, Mom, you can drop me off a block early. I'll just walk in. Um, not a big deal. Well, you can feel ashamed or embarrassed. Or maybe present day, if, if bills are tight and you're out of money and you've prayed and now you think, oh, I just need to ask someone else for help. You can feel a shame about that. Even a guilt or an embarrassment, humiliation. Well, that, that's kind of the feeling that Paul is talking about. That when it comes to Jesus, we don't want to be ashamed of Jesus. We don't want to be embarrassed to talk about Jesus. We want to be identified with Him. And I know it's a real temptation. Because when you speak of Jesus around others who don't know Jesus, it changes the tone. It changes the conversation. Well, interestingly enough, Jesus speaks about this Himself in Luke Chapter 12, verses 4 through 9. And, and imagine, these are Jesus' very words to us. Verse 4, he says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. Well, right now, I think our fear is those who make fun of us, those who mock us. And after that, have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he is killed, has authority to cast in hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than they. Here's the kicker. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So Jesus is encouraging us to be bold about Him. To not be ashamed. It makes sense that the world would mock Jesus. I mocked Jesus 
before I was a Christian. I remember being on campus as a college student, not a Christian, and just collecting tracts from people that were handing out tracts about going to hell. And I had a whole stack of Gideon's Bibles in my closet. Um, I once, before I was a Christian, smoked pot and started preaching and making fun of preachers. So I know what it's like to mock. But we shouldn't be surprised by mocking. And Jesus loves to save mockers. He loves it. So those who might mock the loudest could be the very ones that Jesus brings into his kingdom. Now it's interesting that Tim McKelvey shared this morning about the fear of man. And we didn't coordinate what he was sharing and what what I was sharing. But the fear of man, Proverbs says, is a snare. When we're more aware of people's opinions than God's opinion, it, it can choke us in speech. It can silence us telling someone about Jesus. John 12, 42 and 43 says it this way. This is after Jesus had preached. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in Him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So the situation is Jesus preached. There were some significant people that believed in Jesus. But for fear, for fear of the religious leaders, they didn't confess it. And, he, and then John tells us why. He gives us the diagnosis. Verse 43. For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. If we're going to follow Jesus in this world at present day and be bold about it, we're not always going to be on the receiving end of the glory of man. And we want to be on the receiving end of the glory of God. Paul wants every Christian in Rome to not be afraid of the rulers of Rome, of the educated class of Rome. He wants them to be bold with Jesus Christ. And he himself modeled that. In 1 Corinthians 1.18 he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Paul knew it was a foolish message. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, away with your sophistication and your complex philosophies. Jesus is the answer. He's the hope of the world. He's the one who came to save sinners like you and I. Some sinners who are very educated, very wealthy, very established. Others who are poor and desperate, needy, uneducated, in prison, on the lowest rung of society. Jesus can help them. Not human philosophy. Not more education. Jesus is the answer. So Paul would say, do not be ashamed of the Gospel. And my prayer for all of us is that we would be a church that would be bold when we talk about Jesus. We would not be ashamed. One of the reasons Paul was not ashamed, the reasons are many, but one reason is he was so confident in the power of the Gospel. He was so confident that the gospel was just loaded with power. Look at 116 again. 
For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for, for links to the previous thought, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. Paul was so confident that the message of Jesus was powerful. He experienced it personally when he went from a spiritually dead religious leader to a believer in Jesus Christ. And then he got to see the gospel's power throughout all his missionary journeys. As he's writing this letter in Rome, it's his third trip, his third missionary journey. So he has all kinds of stories of going into difficult places, of seeing religious leaders and seeing criminals be set free by Jesus Christ. And he knew his real power. And so as he's writing to Rome and he desires to go there, he's armed with the gospel. You picture Paul like driving a tank that goes on water to Rome. He wants to get there because he's going to blast Rome with the gospel because it is powerful and it is effective. I think at times as, as we're thinking about Christians and even well-known Christians who are in, on TV interviews or on Facebook or being interviewed somewhere, they often seem like they're on the defensive. So I, I watched both uh, Mark Driscoll and Rick Warren be grilled by Piers Morgan. And you know, they're, they're trying to be on the offensive, but they're often on the defensive. Here's the thing, we, we have an offensive weapon. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ that is so powerful that we don't need to primarily defend it. We need to share it. Charles Spurgeon captures this idea so well. This is one of the most helpful illustrations I've ever heard from Charles Spurgeon. And, and the, the context is, is the gospel, the word of God. He says the word of God can take care of itself. And we'll do so if we preach it or if we share it with our neighbors and friends, and if we cease defending it. He says, you see that lion? Big lion with a big mane, big teeth. They have caged him in for his preservation. Shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion. So we've got a lion in a cage, we've got armed men protecting the lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. O fools and slow of heart, open the door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will dare to encounter him? What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty. And it will soon clear clear its own way and ease itself of its adversaries. He's comparing the gospel to a lion, to a ferocious king of the beasts. Let the gospel out and let, the, let Jesus defend himself. If you remember last week, Jesus is now in power, ruling and reigning. There's no argument that can stop his salvation. There's no clever discussion. Jesus is powerful. And if you study church history, he saves all kinds of people. The most sophisticated, the most well-reasoned, the most articulate atheist encounters Jesus. The most hardcore Christian-hating professor. He saves. 
There's a lady now named Rosaria Butterfield who was a very liberal, non-Christian professor at the University of Syracuse. And she's now a believer in Jesus Christ who speaks often and boldly about His saving power. She would, in her own words, describe herself as the least likely to ever step foot in a church, let alone sing and worship Jesus. Well, what happened to her? The Gospel's powerful. So my encouragement to us is be bold with Jesus. Now, it might come out of timid lips, quivering lips. I've shared Jesus many times in aware of fear, haven't said it clearly, haven't said it carefully, but have said it, and that's enough for Jesus to do His work. So the Gospel is powerful. Just going to give you some areas where it's powerful. At the university level, the Gospel is powerful. At the coffee shop, at the drilling company, at your high school, in your office building, even at your family reunion, the Gospel can be powerful. In the hospital, in a personal care home, In every jail and prison in the world. In every drug and alcohol rehab center. In the teacher's lounge. In the classroom. At a business meeting. With all the great corporate leaders of this area. The gospel is powerful. I think one of the reasons we we often think that, uh, maybe I shouldn't say anything about Jesus here, is not only are we ashamed, maybe or afraid at times, but we might just think people aren't interested. They're not thinking about these things. If I, if I bring up Jesus, it's going to seem so far removed from what they're thinking about right now. Well, I'm going to share a weird example to you to hopefully make a case. Sports Illustrated, this is the latest edition. Everybody in western Pennsylvania should know who Terry Bradshaw is, right? Or most of you do. Famous football player in the 70s. Great stealer. He's now a commentator. Uh, He'll be definitely talking today about the Super Bowl. He's very successful in the world's standards. Won multiple Super Bowls. He has a lot of money, a lot of fame. And what was interesting, this article is an interview between him and another uh, football player who's now a commentator named Howie Long. And the interviewer starts to ask some very personal questions to Terry Bradshaw. And he gives some very candid responses, which are shocking. This is a man who, today we're going to see, tonight, at some point, somebody's going to win the Super Bowl. Everybody's going to be excited. We like the Super Bowl. This isn't an anti-football example. But here's what Terry Bradshaw said. The interviewer gets to his personal life and talks about his marriages. And it turns out he had three divorces. So the interviewer says, Would you marry again, Terry? Bradshaw said, yes, I'm a three-time loser. I feel so dirty. Getting divorced was never, ever something I contemplated. I feel like such a complete failure. I make fun of it because it's the best way to protect myself. Now listen to this last sentence. I don't want to take my last breath without having someone who loves me. This is Terry Bradshaw. He's like crazy on television, and yet... In this paragraph, the gospel addresses everything he said. He feels so dirty. What did Jesus come to do? Die for sinners. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Terry, there is an answer to your guilt that you're aware of. 
And then he closes, I don't want to be alone on my deathbed. Well, someone who trusts in Jesus has a Savior who will never leave us or forsake us. So if on our deathbed there are no human beings there, for a believer, Jesus is there. And so, this is Terry Bradshaw, successful NFL quarterback. Very famous. He needs the Gospel. Just like every other co-worker, friend, relative, neighbor that we have who does not know Jesus. And they're going to be a lot more receptive than you think they are. In the next few weeks, Bob's going to begin to go further through Romans. And you're going to see that just by being a human, we have an awareness of God. So bring the Gospel into that. Last point. Paul was confident in the content of the Gospel. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What does that mean? Here's what it means. This is what set Martin Luther free. It it rescued him. Jesus is the righteousness of God or from God. Jesus is our righteousness. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been clothed, covered, and credited with Jesus' absolute, perfect righteousness. And that happens by faith, by believing in Jesus Christ. So what that means is all of our sins have been paid for and covered by Jesus Christ if you have believed and trusted in Him. So when God the Father looks at you as a Christian, do you know what He sees? He sees absolute perfection because you are clothed and covered in Jesus' perfect righteousness. And the Apostle Paul is going to develop this from chapter 3, 4, 5, and into 6. It's a major theme of the book of Romans. So this is just a taste of the idea that we have been made Righteous, covered by, and some theologians call an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. So if you are a believer and you are clothed in Christ's righteousness, here's what it means for us, practically. You can pray boldly. You can run into God's presence at any time. You can ask great things of God because you are covered and clothed. In this righteousness. Because in the gospel, there's a righteousness of God or from God that is revealed from faith to faith. In Philippians 3, Paul talks about this same idea. He says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from obeying God's rule, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the righteousness that Paul's talking about here in Romans 1.17 and will develop throughout the letter, that you are covered You are clothed. You are positionally secure before the living God 
if you have faith in Jesus Christ. And that should give you confidence. That should give you confidence as you pray. That should give you confidence that God's Holy Spirit is at work in you as you live this Christian life from faith to faith. And it should give you confidence when you share this good news. Because we're sharing something that is very unique compared to all other religions and philosophies. Every religion or philosophy can be summed up in this. You do something, and you earn something. So, a devout Muslim would say, they wouldn't say, I'm confident I will be with God forever. They would say, I hope. I've tried hard. I've kept the rules. Someone who is trying to be a good Buddhist, who's just sticking to Buddhist philosophy, they're trying hard to to gain an inner peace. Christianity says, You do nothing but look to Jesus. Put your trust in Him alone and He will take care of it. He will pay for all your sins and will clothe you and cover you in His absolute perfection. That's good news. Isn't that wonderful news? doesn't mean we don't... It doesn't matter how we live. Paul's going to address that in chapter 6. But our confidence in approaching God... Is Jesus and Jesus alone. So like Paul, we want to be both captivated and confident in the Gospel. Let's pray and the band can come up. Jesus, thank You that You are our righteousness. That we are saved by grace through faith. And we trust You. Well, I pray everyone in this room who knows you would experience the joy of that. And everyone who doesn't yet know you would, would believe that, would put their faith in you, Jesus, as the hope of their life. Lord, fill us with joy as we sing this final song. Lord, we're so thankful for the gospel. And Lord, this week, help us to be courageous and bold in introducing other people to you. Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen.